I am live. Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Raven Ministries International Training Center. You folks that are joining us live from Facebook, good to have you guys out here as well. That's just my case. Amen. Bless the Lord. Good to be here. We're going to continue our study through the epistle of, uh, of Hebrews to, uh, to the delight of Miss Lisa. We're only on verse 5. She's back, uh, having been going through some physical maladies the last few weeks. We're good to have you back, sis. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer tonight. Father, we just thank you for the opportunity. Once again, Lord God, just to, to come into your word, Lord God. Father, we just thank you for what you've been uh, revealing to us, Lord God, showing us by your Holy Spirit. And, and Father, we thank you that it is by your Spirit, Lord God. You said the Spirit would come, Lord God, to lead and guide us into all truth. And that's our desire, Lord God. We just want to know you, uh, Lord God, and to, in order to make you known. Lord God, to just draw into a place of a deeper intimacy and a revelation, Lord God, of who you are. Lord God, just so that we can share with the world, Lord God, that transformational power, Lord God, that was brought to us because of the finished work of the cross of Calvary. So, Lord God, as we come into this place tonight, Lord God, we just put down every distraction, anything, Lord God, that would in any way uh, try to circumvent, Lord God, what you want to speak to us tonight, Lord God. Father, we just, we want to go deeper, Lord God. We want to know you, Lord God. We don't want it just to be a sur surface re uh, relationship. But, Lord God, we want that intimacy, Lord God, to be revealed in us, Lord God, to cause us to grow and, and to, to, to cast off anything, Lord God, that would, that would in, in any way impede, Lord God, our growth and development and maturation in you. So tonight, Lord God, speak to us, Lord God, that you might speak through us, Lord God. We lay every thought down, bring everything thought captive, Lord God, to your obedience tonight. And everybody said amen. Amen and amen. Um, Hebrews chapter 1. Somebody say praise the Lord. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 4. That's what we've been covering over the last uh, uh, nine classes. And it says, God, who at sundry times and in, and in divers of various manners, spoke to in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. And it says, has he, he has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had uh, by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he has, uh, by inheritance, obtained a more excellent name than they. And so, folks, we've been talking about, over the last few weeks, we've been discussing, really, this, this letter that was written to, uh, to Jewish converts that were there at the time, uh, that found themselves, really, uh, under a whole lot of duress as a result of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so, a lot of persecution going on. They were under just a, a lot of persecution that was at the hands of, of both uh, the, they'll be seen, be seen as the enemies of Rome because they only recognized one king. They didn't, they didn't recognize the, 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 the divinity of a Caesar or call him a god. They only recognized one king, so obviously it put them at odds with the Romans. Uh, and also it put them uh, on, at odds and they were despised by their Jewish brethren because they accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And they abandoned the law, uh, not in the sense of application and doing things according to the law. And when I say that, you know, there are certain concepts and things that they kept to. You know, they, they didn't drink the blood or, or eat animals that were sacrificed to the idols. They didn't do things like that. So it's not like they said, okay, if it's law, we just want to abandon it. But they, they, they rejected the law in the sense that they saw that it had been fulfilled through Christ Jesus. And so the law was never looked upon any longer as a means to salvation. It was just the road sign to salvation. So that made the Jewish people despise them on that hand and obviously the Romans on the other because they didn't recognize the, the, the governmental structure and the finality of the word of Caesar. And so as a result of this persecution on both sides, you know, many, a lot of the folks began to kind of just digress back into that Jewish system. And thus, uh, they eventually would just totally deny the faith that brought salvation to them for the very first time. And so the writer of Hebrews, who obviously I believe is Paul the Apostle, he begins to kind of systematically, we talked about this, to kind of reveal a better way uh, of how the cross and how Jesus and his redemptive work became the fulfillment of the very things that these folks held dear. And so all the types of shadows that we've talked about, that the Jews held dear to from the, from the tabernacle in the wilderness, all through all the, 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 the sacrifices and the feast days, he, he's coming to them and saying, guys, listen, this is the better way. This is the revelation of all of those things that, that you once held dear. This is, this, this is the fulfillment of those things that you could never fulfill in the natural. And so he does this uh, several different means. We saw that he revealed that this revelation... Is not secondhand, but it was something straight from God. And you want to think about that? I think about First uh, John chapter one. If you remember how that discourse opened up, he talked about. He said, "Listen, this isn't something I got secondhand. Or I heard heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend who heard this old song. Some of you are laughing. You can tell how old you are, and the rest of it is a hundred from nothing. You've been messing around, but that's not what he did. But you know, First John, he talked about. 
you know, the things that he saw, the things that he heard, the things that he had handled with his own hands. Those are the things that, that he testified. So it was a firsthand encounter and a firsthand experience. And so the, the, the writer of, of, of Hebrews is saying, listen, when Jesus came, it was firsthand because he was from the beginning. He was that one that, that was the express brightness of God that came down. It's really good to just get something straight from the source itself. And so for us as believers, we have that type of, 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 of communication and, and, and community with Christ Jesus because not only does he speak to us, he also dwells inside of us. Now, do you understand really the implications of that? Now, it's, it's one thing, you know, Melly and I, 33 years of marriage this year, it'd be one thing for her and I to say, hey, we've been married 33 years. I'd say, well, that's interesting. I've never seen you together. We'll say, well, we don't talk to her every day. I said, well, you may talk to her every day, but literally I don't ever see you guys together. But what if they saw us together and then they knew they talked, we talked to one another? Because it's kind of like that long, that long distance relationship. Folks, listen, when Jesus came, and that's what the, the message he was conveying to the Hebrews, it's not a long distance relationship. He's not on some distant place and kind of put himself away from us. And, and, and just every once in a while, he kind of peeks his head in the door to see if we're doing okay. But this is a God that is God with us. And he's a God in us. And as much as we can look at, the, at those that he was writing to in the Hebrew letter, folks, listen, most Christians still live that way. True story. Because what we think that he only shows up when we gather at 6.30 on Wednesday night or maybe when Pastor Alex is going to preach at 10 o'clock on Sunday or, or some other time, that's when God shows up. The rest of the time, he's oblivious to anything that we say, do, or think. But he was telling them the better way is the very fact that he came down and he's dwelling inside of you. And you have a firsthand intimate relationship with him. Folks, listen, that, that shouldn't be an imposing thing. That should be an empowering thing to us. We shouldn't say, well, man, God's always looking over my shoulder. We ought to say to ourselves, listen, if God is with me, then that becomes a, a, a statement of faith. That becomes my reality, my hypostasis. And so if he's always with me, and then I really can do all things to Christ Jesus who strengthens me. And folks, that's the revelation that we continually need to get. And you can tell when, when people struggle and they say, listen, I'm just, I'm just human or I'm only this or I'm only that. Well, that just tells you they don't have the revelation. What they got is they, they still think of him as just some distant God that, like I said, pokes his head in the door of our room every, every once in a while, makes sure that we're not making too much of a mess of our lives. But if we can get to the revelation of 1 Corinthians 3.16, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, what does that do for us? Man, it, it, it creates a, a totally new dynamic why? Because it creates a whole new relationship. And that's why he gives, I believe, the, 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 in, in Genesis and again in Ephesians, talking about the marriage covenant. Two shall become one flesh. And he said, I speak a great mystery in Ephesians chapter 5, obviously. He said, I speak concerning Christ and the church. So we become one flesh with him. And so we understand that from the marriage covenant. And in Galatians 2.20, we crucify with Christ. That makes us one with him and we're identified. If he's lifted up, he'll draw us to that place where he is. And where I go to prepare a place for you, what? Where I am, you shall be also. If it wasn't so, I would not have told you these things. So that's the revelation. We get a firsthand intimate experience with him. And that Jesus is, is revealed uh, in the incarnation. He is that God with us. That Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the only atoning sacrifice that endures. That Jesus sits in authority and believing on him is the only means to the Father. We've got to get those things down. And that's got to be in, in, embedded into who we are. Those are the non-negotiable parts of our relationship. God is God and he always will be God. That he sits on the throne of glory and he's not scooting over for my opinion. He's always going to be who he is. So it's best for me just to get in agreement with the things of God. So this brings us, Miss Lisa, to verse 5 tonight. Amen. Good to have you back so we can finally move on. Somebody think you've just been holding me up. No, you haven't. So, but glad you're here. And look what it says in verse 5. He says, For God never said, as a result of all of these things that he laid down, the better way. But it says, God never said to any angel what he said to Jesus. In other words, something is about to be said. Something is about to be revealed that is very unique. Okay, so he said, pay attention. Now, if you think about that in the broad scope of things, now, I know, I know angels are created beings. I know that. I just don't know when they were created. I know they were created a long, long time ago. They were created probably eons ago in, in, in a significant uh, a period of time, probably before uh, Adam was ever created. Those things, they were present there, and we see all the aftermath. And so he's about to say something. He's about to make a declaration that within the course of eons, was never made before, period. So if I said to you, hey, Caleb, I'm going to give you about five minutes to say something. You can, I, want you to, I want you to repeat three sentences, 
And you can't repeat anything you've ever said before in your 21 years of life. Nothing, you can't say anything you've ever said before. You'd be thinking, man, I've only lived 21 years. How am I going to come up with something I've never said before? Now, what if I said, listen, there's eons, but there's about to be something spoken that's going to be so unique, it's going to be just applicable to who Jesus Christ is, that everybody's going to pause and say, whoa. Now, let me ask you a question. You've been in a situation, maybe it's just God speaking to you, and you've thought or you've heard somebody teaching, maybe during leadership you, and you thought to yourself, man, Pastor Tower, or Pastor Ravenhill, man, they said something I never thought about before. Now, how did that make you feel? Pretty good, right? You're thinking, man, I never looked at it that, that way. Talking about certain things. Talking about, your, though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. You think about that and talking about, he, he wasn't talking about Washington. He's talking about just the effects of leprosy. You're thinking, wow, that was, that, was, that was revelatory. Now, that's just a man, finite, getting a word that causes you to take pause and say, whoa, that was pretty. But can you imagine being in the presence of the angelic host who are spirit beings who have a very good memory, probably? And all of a sudden, something said, is like, whoa. He never said to the angels what he said to Jesus. He said, you are my son, and today I've become your father. And God also said, I will be his father, and he will be my son. I'll go ahead and read verse 6. We're going to try to get to that tonight. And it says, and we brought forth, and he brought forth his supreme son into the world. And God said, let all the angels worship him. I'm going to give you three basic elements that are kind of contained in, in verse 5 specifically tonight. And if we get further, we'll look at verse 6 as well. But three basic elements that we need to look at. Number one, that Christ is supreme over any angel. Now, some of this stuff may sound very elementary, but it's, it's amazing how the elementary things is what pe trip people up sometimes. We think of things that should just be basic, B-flat vanilla gospel, things that just, you, you don't have to make them up. It just should be right there as clear as the, the nose is on your face. But the first thing is that Christ is supreme over any angel. The second thing is, that the becoming, or maybe in the King James it says begetting, uh, of the Son of God. And so we're going to see what that really means. And thirdly, the fact that he, Jesus, came and took on the form of man. That's the incarnation, God with us. And the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. So you're going to see all of these things unfold just in, in one verse tonight. So let's look at that first portion of that verse in verse 5. Where it says, God never said to any angel what he said to Jesus. You are my Son, okay, you are my son. There's an exclusivity to that. There's a uniqueness to that. Something he's speaking that we got to get. So it's 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 important because it relates really to just who he is and what he had to be and who he had to be, who we have to acknowledge, and not just some other son, but that he was in fact the only begotten or the only legitimate son of God, opposed to some other references that we see in the scripture. You can write these things down. You don't have to turn to them. I'll just read them to you. Here's a place that you might hear that, 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 that statement about the sons of God. How about Genesis 1 through 2? So if you read your Bible very much, you, you've been in any uh, online discussions, this is always coming up. Genesis 1, 2, uh, 6, 1 and 2. It said, It came to pass when, the, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and the daughters were born of them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, that they were very fair, and they took them uh, wives of all that they chose. And, and you know, people talk about this when... when, when when fallen angels, they, they, they started to cohabit with, 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 with women and created this Nephilim thing. And, you know, people teach that stuff, and that's where the giants came from and all of these things. I, I personally have a, a take issue with it because of some other things in Scripture. And tonight we're not getting into the Nephilim and how they're in the caves in Arkansas and all these other things that people talk about. But you'll see that. So they'll talk about the, these, these sons of God. And so that reference. So whoever that's talking about, you see that reference. You see it in Job 1.6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan was also among them. Obviously, it's using that terminology to refer to an angelic host. Then we got John, chapter 1, 11 and 12. You know this well. And it says, he came into his own, and his own did not receive him. Who were his own? The Hebrews, the Jews. But as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that would believe upon his name. There's that terminology, Romans 8, 14. You've got to throw that in. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are, they are the sons of God. And so we see that there's, there's, there's not necessarily a uniqueness to the verbiage, but there's definitely a uniqueness to the meaning behind those things. Now, now listen, I've got sons and daughters. I do. I've got sons and daughters. But you know what? There's, for a couple of them, because of their genetic makeup, there's a uniqueness to them. That doesn't mean that my relationship with them is... 
any stronger or any lesser. It doesn't mean that my love for them is lesser or stronger. This means that there's a, there's a genetic makeup that, that differentiates them between anyone else. And so I understand what that can look like in that. But when he's talking about with, with Jesus as he never said to the angels, you are my son, you are my begotten son, there's a uniqueness to that that's extended through the adoption. So for we that have come to Christ, obviously through adoption, we become what? Sons and daughters of God. But we're never called the Son of God. We will never obtain that place or that position. And so when you have people like uh, in the Word of Faith movement, one of the major uh, proponents of that teaching uh, out of Fort Worth, Texas, uh, I won't say his name, but he flies around in big jets and has a show called The Believer's Voice of Victory. <laughs> you can Google it. Anyway, he doesn't just say that we are gods or like God. He said we are gods. That's one of his statements. And he also made the statement. He said, you know, Jesus told him, which I believe is a false Christ, that any born-again man could have died for man's sins. He said that. If you don't believe me, my word saying it, I could show you the audio that he preached it. And so you see the fallacy and the destructive nature in that. And so you, you wonder, that stuff, and like I said, man, that should just be basics. But you see how people don't even believe that. People that maybe in many areas that they teach may seem very orthodox. May, they may believe in the virgin birth. They may believe in the vicarious death. But there's other things that have come in that, they're, that really undermines the very basis of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And so the sonship mentioned here in these verses that I mentioned there in Genesis 6 and Job 1, John 1, and Romans 8, whether referring to angels, obviously, or mankind, it's always used in an inferior sense to the sonship associated with Jesus as the only begotten son. And so it's always going to be inferior. And so this is important because any of you guys that have ever studied the cults, you'll always know that the cults will bring something in specifically that most of you probably know about the Jehovah Witnesses and, and the Mormons. They're always bringing these things up and they'll teach that Jesus was merely an angel. Okay, so, so once I strike and who Jesus is, and I make him any less than God, I, I'm, I'm no longer orthodox. I'm no longer the acceptable standard through the word of God on, on, on Christianity. And so when people say, well, what about Mormons? They seem like good people, and they, they seem like they believe the Bible and all these other things. It's not Christianity. It's a cult. And so we had a, a candidate a few years ago that ran for president. People talk about how moral he was and all of these things. And they said, you know, you got to vote for him on that side of the aisle because if you don't vote for him, you're voting. And I said, well, they're both devils. I said, a dressed up devil is the same as a, as a, as a dressed down devil. I said, I'm not going to vote for somebody that, 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 that has that belief system. No more than I'm going to vote for somebody that, that totally uh, uh, speaks things that are an abomination against God. The lesser of two evils is still evil. And so Mormonism teaches that. I'm going to give you something, Jehovah Witness. I'm going to read you something from the Jehovah Witness website concerning this uh, issue. If you ever want to look at their website directly, it's just jw.org, jehovahwitness.org. But this is word for word from their website. And it says, Jesus Christ is Michael the Archangel. Okay, I'm going to keep reading. It says that. That's, I'm just copied and pasted. It. Boom, it's right here. Both names, Michael meaning who is like God, and Jesus meaning Jehovah's salvation, Focus attention on, on his role as leading advocate of God's sovereignty. So it says, because Michael's name means who is God, and Jesus means Jehovah's salvation, that must mean that Michael was God. I got news for you. There was a prophet, and there was also a, another man by the name of Micah in the scripture. And Micah is a derivative of Michael, and the prophet Micah wasn't God or an angel. He was just a guy that spoke for, for, for God. And so just because... Michael, the archangel's name, means that he who is like God doesn't necessarily mean that he is God, right? My name is Troy. Troy is a, is a name that means foot soldier. I've never been in the military. Well, you had to have been because your name means that. My middle name's Dale. It means from the valley. Well, it kind of was from the valley. I guess it was. But So it's, it means I'm a foot soldier from the valley. Well, just because Michael's name meant who is like unto God does not equate with being God. It goes on to understand their website. It says... Uh, it says in Philippians 2, 9, it says that God exalted him to a superior position and gave him uh, the, the, the name that is above every other name. It's quoting that. But it says it's important to note that the human birth of Jesus was not the beginning of his life. Before Jesus was born, Mary was visited by an angel who told her that she would conceive a child by the means of the Holy Spirit and that she should name the child Jesus. 
During his ministry, Jesus often spoke of his pre-human existence. So Michael the archangel is Jesus in his pre-human existence, they said. At, this, uh, at his resurrection and return to heaven, Jesus resumed his service as Michael, the chief angel, to the glory of God the Father. And they're dropping Philippians 2.11 to confirm that. So what they said is you had Michael the archangel. All of a sudden he had an assignment. He went undercover as this Jesus guy. Died not on a cross, they don't teach, but on a torture stake. Not literally for mankind, but just kind of an example of suffering. Then once he got resurrected, he went back to his angel job. So they teach. Now here's from the Mormons website, which is LDS or Latter-day Saints.org. So you have JW.org, LDS.org. Here's, here's what they teach. On first hearing, the doctrine of that Lucifer and our Lord Jesus are brothers may seem surprising to some people. So Lucifer, who would become Satan, was an angel. And they believed that he and Jesus were brothers, especially to those unacquainted with Latter-day Revelations, it says. But both the scriptures and the prophets affirm that Jesus Christ and Lucifer are indeed offspring of our Heavenly Father, and therefore they are spirit brothers. Jesus Christ was with the Father from the beginning. Lucifer, too, was an angel who was in authority in the presence of God, a son of the morning. Both Jesus and Lucifer were strong leaders with great knowledge and influence, but as the firstborn of the Father, Jesus was Lucifer's older brother. How could two, two such great spirits become so totally opposite? Well, the answer lies in the principle of agency, which has existed from all eternity. Of Lucifer, the scripture says that because of rebellion, he became Satan, even the devil, the father of lies. Note that he was not created evil, but became evil by his own choice. And so when our Heavenly Father in Heaven presented his plan of salvation, Jesus sustained the plan and his part in it, giving the glory to God to whom it properly belonged. Lucifer, on the other hand, sought power, honor, and glory on himself, and when his modification of the Father's plan was rejected, so he had a modification of the Father's plan. In other words, he said, listen, that sounds pretty good. You know, the whole Jesus deal going and dying. And so Lucifer, I guess he hit the gavel and said, may I have five minutes here to speak? So I guess somewhere in their book or someplace outside the Bible, he's like, well, I'm kind of with you on that, but let's change that just a little bit and let me do it. Okay? Not in the Bible. It says, when his modification of the Father's plan was rejected, he rebelled against God and was subsequently cast out of heaven and the other angels who had sided with him. Well, I know that that's not what happened, right? He exalted himself above the Most High. He said, I want to go above the, 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 the heights of him, and I want to be like the Most High. I didn't say that I want to modify the plan of salvation for mankind. But so what did they have to do? They had to turn Jesus into an angel and make him a created being just like Lucifer was and put them in harmony with one another. Just one kind of flipped out because he didn't get this great position. Also, Seventh-day Adventists, you met with Seventh-day Adventists before. I call them Sabbatarians because they pretty much worship the Sabbath and they hold to legalism. They also teach that Jesus was uh, Michael the Archangel. So the references that any type of Christophanies that you see in the Old Testament that mention Michael the Archangel, the, the Seventh-day Adventists actually believe that Jesus was Michael the Archangel. Uh, Hebrew Roots Movement, same type of deal. If you, if you watch that thing play out, eventually they will deny the deity of Christ and he becomes a created being. And so anything that puts the attention upon the works of the flesh, the works of the law, the works of self, what it has to do is nullify who Jesus is. And so the writer of Hebrews immediately comes in, and he begins to establish who he is, the uniqueness of his relationship with God. So it says, For under which of the angels has said he at any time, You are my son, this day I have begotten you. Uh, begotten you. Compare this with the familiarity that we have of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his... Only begotten Son, that whoever believes upon him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so you see, he's reaffirming exactly what the prophet John said. But that word, and here's interesting, if you're taking notes tonight. Only begotten is from a Greek word that is monogenose. Monogenos. G-E-N-O-S. And so if I use the word mono, what does mono mean? It's not that get disease you got in junior high from kissing some ugly boy or something. That's not what that is. It's not mononuclear. What does it mean? Mono. Single. And so if I wear a monocle, what does it mean? Just one little glass. I'm like, what's his name on the old Hogan's Hero series that y'all are too young? You know what I'm saying? And so if mono means single. What about genos? G-E-N-O-S. That's your science stuff. It's a type or a class of something. And so it literally means unique or one of a kind. Literally one monos of a class or kind. And so it says that he was his only begotten. 
He was his only monogenos, or he was the only one of his kind. He was it. He was unique compared to everything else. So we're talking about only begotten, singular. He was it. Nothing could compare. Nothing preceded him. Nothing would, would ever exceed him. There's nothing that, 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 that could ever be greater than he was. And so here's the question. Why is it important that Jesus is the only begotten of the Father and not merely a created being or an angel? Why is that so important? So if I ask you, Angela, why is it so important? She's like, please don't ask me this. She's like, I don't know. That's a good answer. Why is it so important that he was who he said he was? Why is it so important that he had to be unique, that he couldn't just be an angel, he couldn't just be some created being that, 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 that served the part? Why, why was that so important? Well, I'm glad you asked the question so I can give you the answer. We've got to understand and accept the deity of Christ, otherwise all bets are off. Everything completely changed. I'll give you some examples. Jesus is God of the flesh. You can write these verses down. I'm not going to read all these. Uh, John 8.58. When you get a chance, compare John 8.58 with Exodus 3.14. Just, just write that down. Also, John 1.1, 1, 1, John 1.14, 1, 10.30-33, John 20.28, Colossians, you can just go C-O-L 2.9. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Hebrews 1, 8 will be there soon. Okay. Let's give you a few of these. But I'm, going to read, I'm going to read a couple of these. 1 John 4, 2 through 3 says this. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Okay. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. In other words... When I acknowledge who he is, the uniqueness, the, 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 the centrality of the message around Jesus, then it says that I understand who God is. So I've got to come to that place. I can't just say, you know what, he was a good man or he was a prophet and I appreciate what he did. It says that every spirit that recognizes the uniqueness and the necessity of who he is is from God. And it says, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus in that way is not from God. But this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is even now already in the world. And so that, that verse could be cross-referenced also to John 1, 1 and 1, 14, also written by John, where he states that the, that the word was God and the word became flesh. And so the same John that wrote 1 John wrote the gospel of John. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was? Was God. Not a God, not an angelic being created by God. And so when John in 1 John chapter 4 begins to say that we have to acknowledge who he is? Well, he doesn't do that without a background. He doesn't do that without some type of prerequisite definition of who this Jesus is. And so that's not just some standalone epistle that we can kind of just leave it to ourselves to decide. I wonder what 1 John really means about that. And I've got to believe that he is. Well, I know what it is because I've read his, his gospel that, that was written before this. I've got to believe that Jesus Christ was God come down in the flesh. That he was who he said he was, and he did exactly what he said he would did. And if I believe upon him, I can be who he said I could be. I could be adopted into the beloved, and I can have redemption through the finished work of the cross of Calvary. And so that's the deity question. I've got to see him not as a created being, not as an angel, but as God himself. First John, uh, excuse me, John 8, 24, he says this, I said therefore to you that you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So unless you acknowledge who I am, unless you affirm who I am, the uniqueness, the, the solitary one that I am, he said, you will die in your sins. Why? Because he said, I am the I am. So Jesus said that if you do not believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. In the Greek, it's that word ego in me, which means I am. These are the same words used in John 8, 58, where Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. He was claiming the divine title by quoting exactly Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. The I am. He left no question as to who he was. And so when Hebrews comes out and he's speaking to these Jews that begin to falter in their relationship, they're saying, listen, you're going back to the law of Moses, which we all acknowledge was given to him. We talked about well, last week about the, the presence of the angels in that exchange of the law. He said, listen, this is not, he never said to those angels that I was talking to you about. Those angels that were present there on, on, on Mount Sinai, they gave me the law. Who do you think gave it to them? Yeah. The same one that said, I am sent me. Right. 
He was that manifestation, that voice that was crying out from the, from the, the, the top of the mountain, from the burning bush. He was the one that was deliverer of, of all of Egypt. He is that one that was the I am. And he utilizes that exact same language in John 8, 58, as he did right there in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. Not a created being, not some angel, but this is God come down in the flesh. Folks, listen, he couldn't, in, in their culture and in their understanding, so for us, listen, We've been brought up around that Jesus is God. We have. And so for me to show up and say, guys, listen, I've got an announcement to make tonight. Hold, hold on to your seats. Hold your breath. Don't get too disturbed. Don't go crazy on me. But Jesus is God. Like, what? So for us, because we're Christian, we're followers of Christ. We're, uh, we're, we're, we're Christocentric so in our belief system. So everything for us comes down to believing that Jesus is the center of it. But if I'm walking into a culture where this Christ came and, 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 and we wholesale rejected him, and now we're trying to play both ends against the middle and, and get out of persecution, and I'm sitting here driving the point home and saying, listen, I know what you're doing. You're trying to slip back into this law. You're trying to slip back into an old way of doing things. But I'm here to tell you, let me remind you of something. That same law that you're slipping back into is this Jesus that came to fulfill it. And now you're digressing. You're backsliding into an old way of thinking. Don't you know? Don't you know that if, that if righteousness cometh by the law, then the grace and the cross of Christ becomes of no effect in your life? What Paul said in, in, in Galatians. So he's breaking that back home, and he's dropping that hammer on them. He, he's pulling the ultimate trump card on them, and I'm not talking about the president. He's pulling the ultimate, the, he, he's laying the, 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 the revelation of who Jesus was upon them. And he says, listen, I'm just going to push it all on the table right now because everything that I, I'm going to begin to say throughout the course of this letter is built upon that one solitary premise that he is the only begotten of God. This is God that loved us so much. This was God that wanted to reconcile us so much that he didn't come and camp out on the top of a mountain for 40 days, but he came down and dwelt among us for three and a half years, took on the form of sinful flesh and for sin. He died a, a, a terrible death upon a cross between two thieves that we might have life and we have it might more abundantly. And here you are because you're going through a little something, because you're having to do without the business that you have. <clears throat> Maybe you're having to die. Maybe your children are being taken from you. But don't you know at the end of the day, this is not what we're living for? Amen. That we're talking about Jesus that loved us enough to give himself as a ransom for man's sins that we could become unique in our relationship with him because he's unique to who he is in God. Folks, that's what he dropped upon them. <clears throat> and so that is that only begotten is essential in our understanding and walking and what salvation is because it allows us to understand a couple things. One of the things it allows us to understand is that, well, that, that terminology, that hypostatic union. You understand what the hypostatic union is? That God is what? It's God, Jesus is both God and man. He was not half God and half man. He was all God. He was all man. He said, well, how could he do that? Well, because he's God. He's unique. Nobody else could ever be that. Why? Because there's only one God. And there's only one God that came down in the form of man so that we might have life, that he might give himself as man, not just the son of God, but he also came as the son of man and the second Adam. Because Adam, as a man, lost that authority that God had given unto him. So Jesus came down as that second Adam and lived his life as a man and died as a man for man's sins, that we might be reconciled unto God. And so I've got to believe that. I've got to understand exactly what he did. And so that's that hypostatic union. He was all God. He was all man. And the sufficiency of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, is completely sufficient to pay for the sins of the world. And it's only through Jesus Christ's sacrifice that anyone can be saved. And so when the scripture says that Jesus died for the sins of the world, well, he did. That doesn't mean everybody is going to be saved, though. It means that, listen, he gave everyone access into that revelation through repentance. And so what I'm going to do, he said, I'm going to come down. I'm not an angel. I'm God made flesh, and I'm going to satisfy sin's debt as a man, as only God can, because he's the only one that's perfect. There's none good, not, any, not, not, not even one except Jesus. So I'm going to come down, and I'm going to do that penalty. I'm going to pay that penalty for man's sin, and it's going to be on the table. It's going to be accessible to you. I loved you so much that I died to give you access. But the way that you appropriate that is through faith. Come to the point of saying, listen, I believe it. 
I believe you are what you, who you said you are, and I believe that you did what you said you, did, you would do, and I'm going to walk as you commanded me to walk. Folks, that's what salvation looks like. Salvation is faith that operates because of grace enables us to do so. And so you may say to yourself, listen, I kind of acknowledge most of that stuff. Folks, listen, most of it's not enough. I'm going to understand who God is and who Jesus Christ was. God come down in the flesh. Because anytime I begin to hack away at those essential elements of salvation, what I've done is I've undermined the whole process. And so he had to die for the sins of the world, 1 John 2, 2. And only God could do that because of who he was. And as a man, Jesus must be a man to be able to be sacrificed for man. And so he bore the sins of the world upon himself as the one. And so when it says that he became, the King James says he became sin, literally means a sacrifice for sin. Because he did not take on the, the sinful nature as, once again, the Word of Faith uh, Church will teach. They said that he became this, this wormy spirit and he went down into hell, which is totally undefensible in the, in the Bible. All this false teaching has come out of that, that, that charismatic movement over the years. And so it's not that. He, he, he became the sacrifice for sin. He became that spotless lamb without, without blemish that he could pay for the price of the sins of the world. That whoever believes upon him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Not just a blanket approach, not just the doctrine of inclusion or universalism, but whoever acknowledges and believes and walks that out in faith will have everlasting life. And so as a man, he became the mediator between God and man. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. And so this means that the Jehovah Witnesses, the Way International, Islam, uh, Mormonism, all of those things are outside of Christianity. There is no salvation in any of those things. What about somebody that just does a lot of good things. You ever got that question? Well, they're outside of Christianity. There's only one name. No other name under heaven where a man can be saved, but in the name of Jesus. Every knee has got to bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the only way he's Lord is if he's God. You hear me? Synonymous with one another. That Jesus Christ is God. That he's not an angel. Has God at any time said to an angel, you are my only begotten son? No. Why? Because Jesus Christ is Lord, and being Lord, that makes him God. And so I've got that question, well, it's, it's so unfair that, you know, that there's somebody that, you know, lived a, this exemplary life, and they did all these good works, and they gave to the hungry, and they did all these things. Folks, listen, so what are we saying? We're God now? So we're saying, if I do enough good things that somehow I can top who Jesus is? Folks, you talk about arrogant and self-righteous and prideful to say that anybody, bar none, could ever live a life that God says, listen, man, you, you got me. The uniqueness of my son, his willingness to come down of an exalted place in glory. And man, you came to the United Way and you took in a couple of orphan children. You know what? Got me on that one. You see the arrogance in a statement like that? Folks, listen, God didn't owe any one of us a chance. When man fell, everything fell with him. And it perpetuated that curse upon humanity and upon the world. And that's why you have all of these things and travesties and tragedies and, 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 and disasters and cancers and all these things. Folks, listen, that is the consequence of man's decision to follow man, to deify man or to lift man up into an exalted place and to push God down. Listen, I know you said in the day that I'll sin, I'll die, but you know what? I don't believe you. So what I want to do is I'm going to say I have a better way than you have. Folks, we do the exact same thing many times. It's not to that degree. It may be not, not, that, not that verbose, but we do it nonetheless. And so look at that statement. He had to die for the sins of the world, 1 John 2, 2. Only God could do that. Why? Because he was the only perfect sacrifice. I'm going to read 1 Peter 1, 17 through 20. Look what he said. He said, and remember that the Heavenly Father to whom you pray for has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. You must live in a reverent fear of him. There's the fear of the Lord that Pastor Alex was preaching on this Sunday. You must live in a reverent fear of him during your time as foreigners in the land. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, it says, God chose him as your ransom long before even the world began, but he has now revealed him to you in these last days. Okay, so he was the only perfect sacrifice. Because God exists outside of time, God knows everything before it happens. Okay? And so when people say, well, if God knew something was going to happen, why did he let it happen? Well, God can't help but know something. 
And so just because I know something uh, is going to happen doesn't make me responsible for it happening. God gives man a choice. And even though God knows what that choice is, God says, even though you're going to make a bad choice and it's going to affect everyone, I'm going to make the greatest sacrifice that has the capacity to affect everyone. Okay? So that's what he did. Through one man's sin, what happened? Sin into the world. But through one man's righteousness, or life and death, many would be made righteous. And so even though God knew who he can't help but know, as a result, God provided that way of escape. He provided that, that pathway to redemption even before the world was formed. You, you know, I, I mentioned uh, on, through Facebook that I met a guy uh, on, uh, on Bourbon Street, um, I think it was Saturday night. And he was watching. He was with you know, two or three teenage kids. Sitting there watching for a minute. He wasn't, he wasn't out there partying or drinking. He was just kind of interested in one of you guys that were preaching. And I walked up to him and introduced myself. He said, yeah, I'm such and such, Pastor Chris, and I'm pastor of church. And uh, I mean, when he went right into this without me, you know, trying to get stop tactic, tactic and asking me any questions. I, 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 I preach at a, at a Baptist church, uh, Trinity Baptist in, in, in Shreveport. And it's a Reformed Baptist church. And he said, listen, I, I believe in, I, I believe, though, in the, in the doctrine of election. I'm a Calvinist. I believe in the doctrine of election and the sovereignty of God. But, you know, but nonetheless, it's, it's neat what you guys do out of here. Well, I knew exactly what it meant. He meant, listen, I believe in election. In other words, God has preordained some people to get saved and some people to be lost. So he said, I mean, I, I at least appreciate his candor. Because most, most people that, that, that lean towards that won't just come out and say what they mean. And God's sovereignty. In other words, whatever happens, happens. I know this because later on, somebody sent me a, a video of the guy. And he's talking about losing his 15-year-old son. And he's like, listen, God had a plan. Whether somebody dies in an accident or somebody gets cancer, that's all part of God's plan to bring about his glory. Really? No, that's part of man's failure to adhere to God's plan. And you know what? He was sincere. I'll say that for him. He was definitely sincere. But can you see why an unbelieving world would look at God and say, why would I want a God? And I've had these conversations. Why would I want to serve God when I sat and I saw my grandmother, her emaciated body being riddled by cancer? You're telling me that God took joy in that? You're kidding me, right? People say things like that. Folks, that's what that doctrine will lend itself to over time. I'm not saying everybody that would preach that type of false doctrine would, wouldn't lend themselves to it, but I'm saying that's, that's the umbrella that those things uh, uh, will stretch over somebody's life. Folks, listen, God made a plan. He couldn't help but it. And so God made a way of escape for every single one of us. In the way of escape, we know that in this body, in this world, you're going to suffer tribulation. You are. It's going to happen because sin is in. That's why there's going to be a new heaven and there's going to be a new earth if I truly believe who he is. And so here's what's interesting to me. He also, when he's talking about who Jesus was and he was the begotten father, also revealed the truth about death. First Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. This is interesting to me when I look at it. First Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. He said, I tell you this, brother, this is Paul speaking. He said, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, right? It doesn't matter how cleaned up it is. It doesn't matter how healthy it is. Flesh and blood is never going to inherit the kingdom of God, right? Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we'll all be changed. Okay? Flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of God. Right? Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. In other words, I'm telling you something you need to stop and listen for just a second. You, you might pass by it if you don't. He said, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Okay? Okay, all of us are going to be changed. It's the question is, what are you going to be changed to? Okay? In a moment of twinkling eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and shall be changed. Okay? Imperishable just means eternal. Okay? For this perishable body must put on imperishable, this mortal body must also put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then comes to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, Death, where is your sting? Now look what it says, verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. What were the Hebrews trying to go back to? And so they were bringing back to themselves the power of sin. And as a result... They were bringing back to themselves the sting of death. 
In other words, they were making death something to fear. I'm going to go on. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. And so death is going to transition you from perishable to imperishable. Okay, one way or another. You're either going to have eternal death or you're going to suffer eternal punishment. In other words, it's never going to die. The worm never dies and the fires are never quenched. All of those things, there's, there's weeping and there's gnashing of teeth. So there's a transition that's going to happen. But the question is, is that transition going to sting or not? Because if I transition through unbelief or through the law, there's a sting and it's going to be eternal damnation or eternal death. It's going to be a total, there's going to be, it's going to be awake. You're going to be aware but you're going to be separated from God and you're going to be burning and perishing for eternity wondering why you did not accept the simplicity of that truth and just put your faith in God. Just repent. God, why Why did I want to hang on to my, my temporal life? Why did I think to myself just one more time, why did I think that God was just some desperate mindless buffoon that was going to put up with everything and welcome me into his kingdom and I could be dancing around on some sea of glass? Why would I do that? For this? Or I'm going to transition, verse 57, through Jesus Christ, who gives me victory. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, uh, the work of the Lord is not in vain. So death is not a destination. Death is a transition. And how you view and accept Christ determines where you transition to. You hear me? So death isn't your destination. Well, what happened to that guy? He died. Well, he died to where? You hear me? And so you, there, another megachurch pastor this past week, pastor of a big church, I believe, in California, he was depressed, so he killed himself. And so did he transition in death through faith, or did he transition through death through unbelief? I'm depressed, so you know what am I going to do? He stuck a gun to his head and blew his brains out. Where's the faith in that? Because faith comes from hearing the word of God, and without faith, it's impossible to please him that those that come to him got to believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So, folks, is that tragic? Yes, it is. But it's not just tragic. Well, what about the family that are suffering? No, not about the family that's suffering. What about that person that was so short-sighted that it's going to eternally feel and experience the sting of death? Because somewhere along the line, they failed to acknowledge who Jesus Christ was. Well, why do I say that? Because he said, cast my cares on you, on me, because I care for you. Period. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But you see how many times we'll change our, our, our theology to fit our circumstance? Well, that hurts too much. That hurts too much, so I just don't want to believe that. Well, that disappoints me. Or such and such seems like a nice person, so I've got to change the way I believe. Or, or I knew somebody that seemed good, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't bear to think, I would never want to go to heaven without them. Well, I do. I don't want to hurt any of your feelings, but I'll go there without you in a minute, period. I want you to go, I'm going to tell you how to get there, but I'm not going to be sitting here saying, well, what about, what about those other folks at the training center? He's like, well, they didn't want to bleed. I'm like, well, sorry for them. It really stinks to be you, don't it? <laughs> folks, I love you, but my love for you does not compare to my love for him, period. And so once again, the, 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 the selfishness and the mentality to ourselves to say, listen, man, I would never want to go and be with a God that's like that. Well, I do. Because it doesn't change who God is. Because I'm either going to want to be with a God like that, or I'm going to feel the sting of death for eternity. Hmm, I don't have to think very long about it. Why? Because when I set my affections on those things above, I have a revelation of eternity. I kind of enjoy what I do. I like hanging out with you guys. I love my wife. I love my grandbabies. I love my children, my sons and my daughters. I love all you guys. But man, I love Jesus. Period. Come with me and you'll love Jesus too. You know what I'm saying? And we'll get experience eternity for one another. I'm not living for the shortness of this life. I'm living for greater and bigger things. But the only way that I can get there, amen, is to acknowledge who Jesus Christ is and get the revelation of who he was as the only begotten. If I believe upon him, back to John 3, 16, I won't perish. In other words, I'm not going to feel the sting of death. I may have an achy ankle or a, or a bald head in this lifetime or something else. But you know what? Man, that stuff don't even sting me. I just keep on getting up, and I just keep on going. I just keep on pressing towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So I want death to be just merely a transition into something glorious. I am now ready to be offered, is what Paul the Apostle said in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I finished my course. Man, did he look like a guy that was depressed? 
He looked at a guy that's like falling apart. He says, listen, I'm in a straight betwixt two. I'm a rock in a hard place. He said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. In other words, I'm going to stick around for you guys to encourage you. But listen, man, I'm going to transition into a glorious place of Christ Jesus. He's the same one that got caught up into the third heaven and saw things that were so glorious that it weren't even long for him to speak. In verse 5, for God never said to any angel what he said to Jesus, you're my son, today I've become your father. God also said, I will be his father and he will be my Son, he's showing the dynamic of that relationship. So the sonship did not exist in that, in that capacity until after the incarnation. Understand that? So he did that to reveal that type of relationship to us. And when he brought his supreme son into the world, God said, let all the angels of heaven worship him. Folks, that demonstrates the deity of Christ because no angel would ever want to be worshipped. Him as... God made manifest is telling these, these, these people he's addressing in the, in, the, in the epistle of Hebrews, just like he's telling us, we've got to understand who God is. We've got to see the enormity of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made, and it makes our life so much more simple. It makes it easy to serve him. It makes it easy to make these menial sacrifices that we may think we're, we're living, even maybe suffering under blood, big deal. Death don't have any sting. Why? Because, man, it's just a transition into something glorious when I acknowledge who he is and what he's done for me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord God. Father, I thank you for who Jesus is, Lord God. I thank you that, Father, just by the sufficiency of grace, Lord God, you gave me, Lord God, the capacity, Lord God, to respond to faith. And I thank you, Lord God, that somebody, Lord God, was willing to share that word with me, Lord God. That way, when your spirit came and brought conviction, that you drew me to yourself, Lord God, I knew what to do with it. Father, I thank you today, Lord God, that I've been adopted, Lord God, into the blood, and I've got the benefit because of who Jesus was, Lord God. So, Father, we thank you for that, Lord God. We ask, Lord God, just for that, that to deepen in our heart, Lord God, to create an urgency, Lord God, to go, Lord God, and shout it from the housetops that Jesus Christ is Lord, and no man comes to the Father except through the begotten of the Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name.